Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Topping. Today's episode features expert answers to healthcare professional questions surrounding use of BTK inhibitors for CLL and MCL. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Addressing Evolving Educational Needs on BTK Inhibitor Therapies in CLL, SLL, and MCL. During this podcast, Dr. Jeff Sharman from U.S. Oncology and the Willamette Valley Cancer Institute in Eugene, Oregon, Dr. Matthew Davids from the Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and Dr. Anthony Mato from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York, discuss important topics, including how to select between BTK inhibitors and other available therapies for specific patients with CLL and MCL, how BTK inhibitor resistance can occur, and how investigational non-covalent BTK inhibitors might be used in the future. Please visit the show notes for this episode for a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, expert commentaries, and an on-demand webcast from a live CCO event. Now, let's get started and hear what the faculty have to say on these important topics. The three of us will be talking about a variety of key questions for BTK inhibitors here before we get started. This is sort of a, a hypothetical patient case. So a patient was diagnosed with CLL and unmutated IGHV. Uh, this patient had a 17P deletion and requires treatment. So in your current practice, what treatment would you recommend for this patient? So Matt, uh, in one minute or less, do you have any, any thoughts or reflections on that? Uh, certainly a patient with deletion 17P should not be getting chemo immunotherapy. Uh, I do think continuous BTK inhibitor therapy or venetoclax plus obinutuzumab is reasonable. Say most of us, including myself, for the 17P deleted patients have been preferring the continuous BTK inhibitor strategy just based on longer term follow-up. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, we do see good results with venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. So if this patient did have comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, for example, it's, it's worth considering. But I, I think I would probably go with acalabrutinib in a patient like this. Yeah, that would be my thought. All right. We've got these therapies. So sort of patient comes in and uh, has CLL, maybe been following for a length of time. They they need therapy. How are you segmenting uh, these patients to determine, you know, who gets what what sort of treatment? So how do, how do you shuttle patients back and forth between these options uh, in the frontline setting? We're left in a situation where we have great drugs. It's a choice between winning options, I would say and um, no direct comparative evidence. And so it is a, a prolonged conversation where we weigh the pluses and minuses for either approach. At the end of the day, if I, take a, if I sit back and I look at the data from your Elevate TN trial, Jeff, that's the Acala-Obin data, and then I look at the data from CLL-14, I feel pretty comfortable that most of these um, treatments, regardless of which path you take, and get you to the same place with very similar efficacy data and acceptable toxicity data. But it is a comparison weighing risks and benefits and, and not one based on, on randomized data. Fair enough. But I, I'm going to put you on the spot here, which is, you know, brass tacks, you got a patient in front of you. What are those things that actually do influence your thinking about, you know, a patient may be more appropriate for this approach or, or that approach? And again, you know, this is, this is more the nuance of, of practice of medicine rather than comparative efficacy data. So if they have, you know, active coronary disease, some severe hypertension that's poorly controlled, a bleeding diathesis, they're on warfarin. You know, just as a couple of things off the top of my mind, it leads me away from BTK inhibitors. If they've had arrhythmia events, it leads me away from BTK inhibitors. If they have underlying renal dysfunction, for example, 
that would lead me away potentially from uh, venetoclax-based therapy. Most patients are, are acceptable candidates for either choice, but then you need to take into account the schedule. If somebody is determined to get off of therapy at some time point, then a BTK inhibitor is not an acceptable option in 2022. If somebody is very busy and they can't endure three weeks of venetoclax and then five weeks of ramp up because of their life, you know, work commitments, personal commitments, whatever, starting a BTK inhibitor is a monotherapy. So it's, it's the comorbidities, it's the schedule. To a certain extent, it may be looking at their genetic profile, take it all together. It's still a long conversation, but I would say most people end up in the middle and either choice are still very reasonable. So in a patient who's got DEL17P, I think it's fair to say we don't have direct head-to-head comparison, as, as you guys have pointed out. And I think there's, there's room for differences of opinion on this one. I, I don't know that the field has universally coalesced around what the right answer is here. I will tell you, it's my bias to probably start with a BTK in, in these patients. We know from the CLL14 study, which was obinutuzumab venetoclax, the DEL17P patients, there weren't a whole lot of them in the study, but they definitely kind of dropped out earlier from a progression-free survival perspective than, than the others. I would be agreeable to treating a DEL17P in the context of a clinical trial on obinutuzumab venetoclax, but curious if either of you guys have a differing take on that. I personally have no preference. I have no mandate that a patient has to get a continuous BTK inhibitor with a deletion 17P. This is where I might differ a little bit from what Matt was saying. I feel the median PFS, I mean, keep in mind, we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about 17 patients on CLL14. I mean, I wish there had been more patients, but it's such a tiny number to really draw any really strong conclusions about. But at the end of the day, they did have a median PS, PFS of 49 months. And at least from the relapse refractory setting, we do have some VEN retreatment data. In my mind, even if you got half of that with retreatment, you're still looking at a median PFS of like 75, 80 months. That's excellent. And I expect that's what you would see with a BTK inhibitor as a continuous therapy. So I think with venetoclax, you need to really think about a PFS too, because I still consider retreatment as the same line of therapy. And I don't think that that's taken into account enough when you think about that choice. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, and I will feel much more confident about using venetoclax in that setting once we have at least some retreatment data in the high-risk patients. And, and I agree with you. That means they're, they're likely to respond again. Uh, but I, you know, since we have the data for the BTK inhibitors longer term so far, that's why I've kind of erred on that side. But again, if I had a patient who had AFib or coronary disease who had 17P, I would not hesitate to use venetoclax in that patient. But uh, amongst, for, for both of you guys, um, when you're, you're picking, uh, let's just say you've committed to a BTK inhibitor in the frontline setting, how do you pick between a brutinib and, and acalabrutinib? I pick acala. I think the AE profile is better and the activity is the same. And I love the trial that you did that gives contribution of you know, individual components. So I, I have some data on CD20 that I feel comfortable with. So for me right now, it's a fairly easy decision, although I am mindful of the long-term follow-up data for my brutinib, the more randomized data for my brutinib, the overall survival advantages for my brutinib. But most of the time, for me, AEs trump anything else, and the, the head-to-head data are quite compelling, and the Elevate TN data are quite compelling from an AE perspective. Uh, so the, the question was, I read that BTK plus obinutuzumab doesn't work as well in combination. What's your experience? And then the, or the prompt we have is, when do you consider adding anti-CD20 antibodies to BTK inhibitors? So do you want to address that? Sure, I can, I can take that. So, I mean, first of all, I'm not aware of any data suggesting that the combination does not work as well as single-agent BTK inhibitor. I, I think to me, the question is more about, does, does the obinutuzumab add anything to BTK inhibitor? We, 
we have clear data with rituximab and ibrutinib, both in the frontline and relapse settings, that, that rituximab does not add to ibrutinib. But I think, you know, the intriguing data set uh, that you've published, Jeff, from ElevateTN does suggest that there may be a benefit of adding obinutuzumab to acalabrutinib compared to acalabrutinib alone. Uh, it was a post hoc analysis, uh, but it is, uh, you know, continuing to, to be present now with four years of follow-up. Uh, there's sort of, correct me if I'm wrong, I think nine or 10% or so difference mm-hmm. in terms of PFS yeah. uh, at four years. And interestingly, what you showed was that that benefit was not from the high-risk patients. It wasn't the 17P patients. It was, it was actually even the mutated IGHV patients who seemed to benefit the most from this combination. So as I talk to patients, you know, I do mention the combination of acalabrutinib with obinutuzumab. We talk about that versus acalabrutinib. I think, as we've been discussing, there's trade-offs, of course, because with the obinutuzumab, you have the inconvenience of the infusions, some additional toxicities, higher risk of infection, cytopenias. Uh, but you have the potential for a longer PFS. And I would say most of my patients, and this kind of segues a little bit into one of the later questions, I think in the COVID era, they've been trying to avoid CD20 antibodies. Yeah. And so most of, most have chosen acala monotherapy. But it'll be interesting yeah. once, once hopefully COVID is, is not as active an issue, some patients will choose the combo. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think that the uh, obinutuzumab addition, you know, you get more bang for your buck. You also get a little bit more toxicity. So, you know, I think to some degree, it depends upon goals of therapy and I might favor it more in, in younger individuals uh, or those for whom I don't anticipate any challenges with anti-CD20 antibodies. Yeah, so younger individuals where, where toxicity might be less of a concern because you do see more infections and so forth with the addition of, of open. But, you know, interestingly, follow up, keep an eye on the overall survival uh, difference between those two arms. Those, that's uh, also post hoc, but there may actually even emerge a survival benefit there. So you talked about COVID-19 uh, and how that's influenced uh, and recommend first-line therapy. I can tell you that um, for me, it starts with vaccines and boosters. And I've been more recently giving a fair bit of Evusheld to my patients. But aside from those variables, anything else about how COVID-19's influenced uh, how you pick first-line therapy? I think at this point in the pandemic, and, and I don't even want to say like recent, but over the last, I would say, several months, I am not really letting the pandemic influence my choice of therapy at this point. I'm, if I think a clinical trial is most appropriate, that's the direction I'm going. If I think molecule X plus Y is most appropriate, that's the direction I'm going. So I'm not withholding therapies. I'm not delaying therapies. I'm not giving partial therapies for COVID. Um, whatever I think is the best CLL-directed therapy is what I'm choosing. And then I'm using all those tools you mentioned to try to minimize the risk for patients regardless of what I choose. Yeah, so, so similar approach for us. I mean, certainly early in the pandemic, there were issues around bed availability in the hospital and admitting patients for phenetoclax ramp up, et cetera. But that's, that's really not an issue anymore. So the, the only place is, is what I mentioned before, where maybe I'm on the fence about adding a CD20 antibody to a BTK inhibitor. So I kind of let the COVID situation kind of dictate that a little bit. But outside of that, nothing else. So how do you select therapy for patients who've relapsed following either OB-VEN or what about patients who've received a BTK inhibitor? And I guess the relatively obvious answer might be, hey, switch if, you know, if there's, there's, but uh, retreatment's a different uh, approach here. And, and um, Matt, I know retreatment's a, a topic that's been of interest to you, particularly with OB-VEN. The literature's a little bit scant, but um, do you want to comment on that? Sure. I mean, I think that is is a very appealing option uh, to consider for patients. And, you know, from the relapse setting, we have seen some data that Anthony alluded to earlier that suggests the likelihood that many patients will respond. Uh, small numbers, but it seems like 70, 75% of patients will respond to venetoclax retreatment in the relapse setting. 
I would imagine that number is likely to be even higher in, in the frontline setting, uh, but we don't know what that number is yet. So we're in the process of launching a, a, a phase two trial uh, called the REVENG uh, trial, retreatment with VENG or obinutuzumab, uh, where patients who have had at least one year of remission after their one year of VENOBIN can get treated with VENOBIN again. And uh, so hopefully we'll generate some response data fairly quickly with that study to have a better sense for, for how effective it is. Yeah, that's great. And have you guys, uh, you know, Xanabrutinib, so there's sort of an interesting role for that, right? So it is not FDA approved in CLL yet. So it's true that it does not have a label yet in CLL, but because it's approved in relapse mantle cell lymphoma, we, we can, in theory, get access to it off-label. It has made its way into NCCN guidelines in CLL. Uh, and so I, I have some limited experience using it in clinical practice or sort of outside of the trial setting. It tends to be patients who have had tolerance issues for the, the other drugs, or for example, patient who wants to be on a more specific BTK inhibitor who has to absolutely be on a PPI. As of right now, acalabrutinib does have a drug interaction there, and, and so xanabrutinib could be a good choice for a patient like that. Although acalabrutinib is, is now being developed as a malleate formulation that hopefully will come out later this year and we'll get rid of that issue. So uh, for me, it's been pretty limited use of xanabrutinib so far, but it's been a very good experience with the drug. It's been extremely well tolerated, very effective. So I think it'll, it'll be great to have it as an option for patients once it's approved in CLL. Take a step back, Anthony, for me. And... Maybe if you could talk to me, not just about the fact that it's covalent versus non-covalent, but you know, if you could talk about maybe like selectivity and pharmacokinetics and how those aspects play into how pertubertinib is differentiated uh, from the first and second generation BTK inhibitors. Sure. So from the perspective of selectivity, you know, this BTK inhibitor is probably the most selective agent that we have available to us. The original preclinical data compared its selectivity versus three, you know, for BTK versus 300 other kinases, and it was incredibly selective for BTK. If you look at the kinome map, you actually think there's something wrong with it because it essentially only, you know, you only see a dot over BTK. Its PK properties are pretty remarkable as well. They're incredibly predictable, which is what you want to see in a drug you know, at each individual dose level, the peak, you know, the PK properties are, are essentially superimposable for every patient. So it's got a favorable PK property, it's specific, and that should translate into, um, you know, a very, very um, excellent adverse event profile regarding off-target effects, which is what you do see from the clinical data. No, that's right. And I mean, I, I think maybe part of what's odd about the question is that pertubrutinib functions in a way that many drugs work, but not any of the BTK inhibitors work, which is getting into the bloodstream and sticking around for a while. Whereas the, the covalent inhibitors, you know, are the active substrates are really only present in the blood for a comparatively short period of time. And abrutinib, perhaps the shortest, acalabrutinib a little bit longer, xanabrutinib perhaps the longest. And, but it's during that time that you get the covalent modification of the BTK enzyme and you know, it's, it's just a sort of different way about thinking about the drugs and, and the fact that pertubrutinib goes in and achieves sort of a stable half-life and so forth. Nemptabrutinib is another one that was an, uh, formerly known as Arcule 531 and uh, is now under development by Merck uh, under the name Nemptabrutinib. A little bit further behind, a little bit less data, but I think we'll just have to watch how both these, both these evolve. I do think that pertubrutinib in this sort of third generation BTK inhibitor class probably has the lead relative to nemtabrutinib uh, from a uh, clinical development perspective. So there is a question in the chat box. Uh, let me see if I can find it again, because we're, we're 
we've got a number of these here. Yeah, so this was also from uh, Barbell, which says, I read that pertubrutinib can cause mutations. It was suggested to add another drug to avoid this. Which one would you prefer? Let me rephrase the question a little bit to fit with our, our discussion guide, which is, what are the mechanisms of resistance to covalent inhibitors? And then maybe I'll have Matt tackle that, and then we'll come back to Anthony for some of the newer data regarding um, non-covalent inhibitors and what happens there. So Matt, do you want to talk about mechanisms of resistance? Sure. So for covalent BTK inhibitors, this has been pretty well established for several years now that the most common mutation that we see is a BTK C481S mutation. Uh, and this was originally described in patients treated with ibrutinib, uh, although it was later seen in patients treated with acalabrutinib. I haven't seen as much data with, with xanabrutinib there, but that accounts for a good 70, 75% of the patients. You also have probably 5 to 10% of patients who have a PLC gamma 2 mutation, some patients who have co-mutation there. So that's that's accounting for 80, 85% of the resistance to covalent BTK inhibitors. And you know, they're, they're pretty widely available in terms of testing now, so we can, we can figure that out as to what the resistance mechanism is for our patients. There's still that small piece of the pie there we, where we don't know what causes resistance, but that, that's pretty rare. So that, that's sort of the, the general story for covalent. It tends to be in the patients who have deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, especially in the relapsed refractory setting. Although these mutations have been seen in patients progressing after frontline abrutinib, we don't have that many patients who, who progress in the frontline setting, so it's, it's not quite as clear as the relapse population. Yeah. And, and Anthony, before we get to sort of non-covalent resistant mutations, can you just give a comment about how well pertubrutinib works against those resistance mutations seen against first and second generation BTK inhibitors? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, while the, you know, ultimately the drug works well in wild-type and BTK cis for 81 mutated patients, I mean, the original the original intent or design of the molecule was to overcome um, those mutations that Matt already described, particularly in BTK. It works really well. The data that we've presented, and, and we've all been part of these studies, the three of us, is the, um, you know, the data where you can see a high overall response rate for the molecule that's not affected by the presence or absence of a CIS481 mutation, for example, and you can see progression-free survival that's not impacted by the presence or absence of a CIS481 mutation. So in terms of achieving the goal of addressing the biggest unmet need for a covalent BTK inhibitor-resistant patient, it absolutely does do that. The nice added benefit was that it works great in wild type. It works great in the setting of intolerance. It has a great AE profile. So, but for the unmet need, it, it really does hit, you know, hit a home run in that department. And so what are the pivotal studies for pertubrutinib uh, that will hopefully get uh, a pertubrutinib label? Well, there's two, uh, for CLL specifically. Yeah, for CLL. Two, there's two relapse refractory studies that are ongoing. Um, one is a time-limited approach, which is VEN-R, VEN-Rituximab, the Murano regimen, plus or minus pirtubrutinib. And then there is a randomized trial, uh, three-arm study, one-to-one-to-one randomization of pirto-mono versus idela-rituximab versus bendamustine-rituximab. Um, that does allow crossover from those control arms to back to PIRTO. So that is another one. And then there's a frontline trial of PIRTO, correct me if I'm wrong, versus bendamustine rituximab, similar to the Alliance trial. And I've also heard, um, but I don't know if it's launched yet, of a of a one-to-one randomization versus ibrutinib. That's, I think that's everything, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tweak one of the ones you said. You called it a three-arm study of in the relapse oh, setting. So, of, yeah. It's, so that's it's, actually it's, a two-arm study. Yeah. Yeah, it's a two-arm study of investigator's choice, and that's exclusively in patients who had a prior BTK inhibitor. So they have to have had 
treatment failure from a first or second generation BTK inhibitor. Matt, where do you see these drugs, uh, particularly the non-covalent inhibitors fitting? Let's just say they were approved today. Where would you use them? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish they were approved today because you know the, the trial availability has been challenging at times. And I have patients in my practice on a weekly basis who could be candidates. And it's those typically those patients who are post-covalent BTKI, post-venetoclax, where you know now in the standard setting, I might try a PI3 kinase inhibitor, but data from Anthony and, and others have suggested that uh, the, the PFS is not going to be great for PI3 kinase inhibitors there. So if I had pertubrutinib in that population, I would certainly be using it today. You know, I think it's it's interesting to imagine sort of in the second line setting, patients progressing after an initial covalent BTK inhibitor, whether you might use pertubrutinib before venetoclax, maybe mm -hmm. stay in class. You know, maybe there are reasons why you chose a BTK inhibitor in the first place rather than venetoclax, and you know, those, those same reasons may still be in place. Maybe the patient has renal dysfunction or difficult for them to do the venetoclax ramp up, et cetera. So it'd be nice to have another BTK inhibitor there. So it, that's sort of where in the short term where I see a, a drug like pertubrutinib fitting in is sort of post-covalent BTK inhibitors. Now, based on the toxicity profile looking so great, it, it is definitely intriguing to imagine it moving up into the frontline setting. Uh, but you know, I, I think obviously we'd need a lot more data to feel comfortable using it there. Perfect. Thanks. And uh, actually, I'm going to keep these final questions in mind here, but I'm going to just click through a couple slides because, uh, Anthony, this is, this is your data here, just looking at you know, the waterfall plot and then the progression-free survival with pertubrutinib, which, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive looking. So the uh, one other emerging strategy here, we'll just go back to this slide, is the idea of BTK and BCL2 combinations. You know, this is a lot of intellectual appeal to this, which is that you have an all-oral regimen. Maybe there's a unique synergy between the two. And we've got two data sets. One is the GLOW uh, data set. Uh, this is German study, more European study, I should say, than German, which looks at abrutinib venetoclax versus obinutuzumab chlorambucil. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's the last obinutuzumab chlorambucil control arm study out there. And, uh, you know, no surprise here, you get a significant improvement with the combination therapy. However, you know, I think there's been some question about how well it performed in this setting, which tends to be an older population, sort of had to be above age 65, or you could be less than 65 with certain comorbidities. But, you know, the question to some degree is how, how much that uh, experimental arm contrasted with either of the BTK monotherapy or obinutuzumab venetoclax. Interestingly, and perhaps in counterpoint, if you look at the Captivate data, which was a U.S. study with a group of patients that were younger, and this was not a randomized study, but Boy, that looked really quite impressive with the progression-free survival that uh, almost looks like a box top there. So curious for both of your impression, when the all-oral regimen is approved, which we're anticipating before too terribly long, do you think you'll use it? I can, I can start. You know, I think it's great to have more options for patients and having a time-limited all-oral novel agent regimen, I think will be helpful based on what sort of what you were alluding to. Um, actually, you know, the, the differences between these two studies to me, Captivate and Glow, were more around toxicities rather than efficacy. I think the efficacy looks great to me in yeah. both. But in those older patients in the Glow study, there, there was more atrial fibrillation, cytopenias, uh, and, and even some more serious cardiovascular events that were a bit concerning. And, and that wasn't really seen much in Captivate where, where the regimen was much better tolerated. So for me, the, the patient would be kind of that, that younger fit patient, wants a time-limited therapy, doesn't like the idea of being in the infusion center all day for six, you know, six months with the obinutuzumab. So yeah, I, I do think it'll have some use, but 
as we've alluded to in other parts of the conversation, we're all using acalabrutinib more. So I, I would be actually much more intrigued by the possibility of acalabrutinib with venetoclax, which we will not have as a labeled regimen uh, that soon, uh, but hopefully at some point in the future. Yeah, great. Anthony, do you have any comments on where you might use that? I, I agree with what Matt said. I think it's going to be a, it'll probably be a, you know, a small minority of patients. They'll be younger. They'll be fit with a poor risk feature and they, you know, they will be interested in something time limited. I'm a little disappointed with the GLOW data set in terms of the, first of all, the PFS, and then the, more importantly, the AE profile. So for my average CLL patient who's in their 70 plus years being treated, for me, CLL 14 remains a standard of care for a time-limited approach. I'll address some of the topics in, in mantle cell lymphoma, another place where BTK inhibition is really important. For patients who experience relapse, three different BTK inhibitors have been approved, acalabrutinib, abrutinib, xanabrutinib. All of them were approved on the basis of single-arm phase two studies involving uh, about 100 to 140 patients. And all of them you know, looked relatively similar, allowing for all the typical cross-trial comparison analyses. Frankly, if you're going to pick between BTK inhibitors, I think that the CLL literature which included a number of head-to-head -head studies, might be more informative than, than any of the unique studies in mantle cell lymphoma. There is a trial right now of pirtabrutinib, which compares pirtabrutinib to investigator's choice of acala, abrutinib, or xanabrutinib. So it'll be interesting to see how that reads out with time. And in terms of BTK inhibitors in the first-line setting, very limited data for, for monotherapy, mostly kind of retrospective anecdotal data in individuals who are older or who may not tolerate more aggressive chemotherapy. There's some question about using BTK inhibitors in those um, mantle cell lymphoma patients who have either 17P deletions or TP53 mutations because they're not going to do particularly well on chemotherapy. And I think that time will tell where the non-covalent inhibitors may fit in these settings, particularly now that we have a head-to-head uh, study comparing the non-covalent with the covalent inhibitors. So what are the key safety concerns for BTK inhibitors? You kind of alluded to it when we started talking about how you segment these and so forth, but did you want to sort of address this question? Sure. I think there, while there's a lot of off-target effects, if you're talking about key safety concerns, I would say cardiovascular toxicities, arrhythmia would be number one, either atrial or ventricular, hypertension, and then the downstream effects of either or congestive heart failure or coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular events or stroke. Second on the list would be bleeding events. And for me, third on the list would be um, infections. And I think those are the probably the most concerning risks associated with BTK inhibitors. I'm not sure if either of you guys would add anything more to the list. That really fits with my experience. Matt, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, to, to get to the arth arthralgia myalgia point, that is quite common, but I've, I've found it usually be manageable, um, you know, usually with supportive care, dose adjustments, et cetera. Uh, sometimes I have had to change to a different BTK inhibitor, but that would be, for me, often a reason I'd want to stay in the class to try to find a BTK inhibitor that's tolerated. But some of the, the more salient events that Anthony mentioned, like severe bleeds or um, cardiovascular issues, I've, I've sometimes had to switch patients uh, to venetoclax, for example. Thank you very much, Dr. Sharman, Dr. Davids, and Dr. Mado. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program addressing evolving educational needs on BTK inhibitor therapies in CLL, SLL, and MCL, and to download slide sets associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, 
please click on the links in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.